0: Welcome back. Um, my guest tonight um, is a talented economist. Um, he has worked on the international scene at the highest level. And, of course, he is from Dominica. He is part of the opposition of Dominica. He's an opposition senator. And I'm talking, of course, about Dr. Thompson Fontaine. And those of you who are long listeners to this weekend interview knows that know that I am um, I'm following his footsteps. He's the, he actually used to sit in my chair as the host of, um, of this week in interview. So tonight I have him back. We always do that every year when we have, when it's budget time in Dominica, as an economist, as someone who is used to working with the economies of small or, or, or countries who are facing economic challenges, and of course as a member of the, of the parliament, the opposition side of the parliament, I think he is uniquely qualified and, and, and knowledgeable to, to discuss items such as the budget to us. And so, as usual, I'm bringing him back on. But as I told you before the break, he's currently stationed in South Sudan as a, an advisor, financial and economic advisor to JMEC. And JMEC is the commission that's overseeing the peace treaty between Sudan and South Sudan, and, um, of course, you know, South Sudan a few years ago was declared as, as, as a country, a sovereign country in itself. So, you know, a sovereign country, you have to you have all of these institutions to put in place. So the commission that's overseeing um, that, that peace treaty um, has um, hired Dr. Fountain to be the economic and financial, and, and financial consultant. So, uh, Thompson, I, I can only say welcome back. Welcome back home, I should say. And it's always a pleasure to have you as my guest on this weekend interview.
1: Yes, I'm um, Tony. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. And let me just say that you continue to do an excellent job over these many years now. I think I've been gone now for five, six years. All that and, um, yeah, it's been it's been that long, and you continue to hold the fort exceptionally well. continuing to to bring to provide a very useful. Means of information. If all of the all of the people that you continue to interview week in week out on TV and Radio, so I'm I'm really thankful for the great work that you continue to do for our country, and I'm certainly happy to be on the program tonight on a on a different side, <laughs> as it were, but, uh, but, but happy to be here nonetheless.
0: Definitely, you know, um, I always say that to my listeners. I I feel so privileged to be in this chair because there's a number of people. All my guests are special, but you know. Um, there are people that you grow up admiring. Um and then this as a host of this weekend interview gives me the opportunity to reach out to these people and to have a conversation with them for an entire hour. And and that is something that I enjoy very much. And um I don't take it lightly and of course I love the idea that I can share it with the audience. So of course thank you for starting it off and handing it over to me. I will just, you know, continue to enjoy it and to try to bring More and more guests because you know there is an endless supply of persons from Dominica, from the Caribbean, and and further afield who have so much to share. But again, as as I said, um, you're here tonight. And um, before we jump into the budget discussion, I wanted you to to give the listeners a little bit of uh, an overview of the work that you're doing in um, South Sudan. Before before you start, though, let me just tell listeners that um, I'm talking to you over Skype. And you are in South Sudan right now, and although the connection is very crisp and clear, um, just in case you know the technology um, gods decide to to intervene and we we experience any kind of issues, I, I'm apologizing ahead of time. Hopefully, we don't need to, but I just wanted to clear that so that if we have any technical difficulty, that um, we're talking about an internet connection that may not always be at its best. But yes, um. T- Tell us a little bit about your um, your, you know, your, journey out into South Sudan and, and what's all so involved.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, Tony, again, thanks for the opportunity. Let me just say that I am, I, I am here in South Sudan, and, and let me just explain to the listeners exactly the role that I play with a little bit of background information because sometimes people read stuff and it's not always clear especially in this side of the world, which is really far away from Dominica. I mean, it feels far. When I'm here, I feel like I'm far, far, far from Dominica. Uh, Basically, South Sudan, as we know, is the newest country in the world or the youngest nation in the world. It got its independence in December of 2011. And it got its independence after a violent conflict with Sudan. It was part of the bigger Sudan. Whose, whose capital is Khartoum, and they it basically since 1983 um, the people of South Sudan which is a basically that particular area is um, made up of what we call the black African people the black black Africans and they mainly Christian and you have you had enough of of Sudan, which mainly included um, Arabic speakers who and most of them were of the lighter extract. So for years that was one country, but then in 1983 the conflict started, and you had several thousand people got got killed. But eventually in 2011 they were able to secure their independence from Sudan. So now you have two countries where previously you had one. You have the original Sudan that continues to keep the name Sudan. And you have the Republic of South Sudan, which is, as I said, mainly Christian. So they got their independence in, 20, in 2011. But what happened was in 2013, sadly, the same people who had fought together, they turned on each other. So, the president of, of, at Independence is a gentleman by, by the name of Silver Care, and his deputy was Riak Macha. Now, Silver Care, and I'm putting that because it's important to understand the context. Silver Care is, belongs to the dominant Dinga tribe, and his deputy belongs to the tribe called the Nua. Now, um, there were some difficulties between the two of them and that erupted into civil war. So the supporters, those troops who were loyal to the newer marcher took up arms against those who were loyal to the president silver care and they started a civil war. A civil war that has been very disastrous that saw the, uh, seen the death of at least 50,000 people That has seen Sudan create the most refugees in the modern era. You have close to 3.2 million refugees who have left, who fled the fighting in South Sudan. Uh, basically, they have they have fled and you have a lot of atrocities being committed, mass rapes, murders, a lot of, um, you know, robbery and all of that. So you, you have a number of those millions of the refugees, as I said, 3.2 million with the large, with the vast majority uh, living right now in Uganda. You have another large portion that lives in Kenya and some in the Dominican Republic. It, I mean in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Mm-hmm. So once this conflict, once this conflict started in 20 in 2014, then you had all of this. And then in 2015, in in April of 2015, the international community led by the Countries surrounding South Sudan, that is the countries of Kenya, Uganda, Ethiopia, Djibouti, and uh, Uganda, they came together and uh, along with the United States, the China, the European Union, the African Union, an international coalition, and convinced the warring factions within South Sudan to stop the fighting and to enter into a peace agreement. That was in April of 2015. As part of this peace agreement, the uh, a committee was formed called the Joint Monitoring and Evaluation Committee that was supposed to oversee the implementation of this peace agreement. The it is called JMEC, and it is headed by the former president of Botswana by the name of uh, Festus Mogae, who is the former president of the country of Botswana and it is a commission I was formed to oversee so I am basically employed within the GMEC as uh, because as part of the peace agreement there was a, a chapter on the economy because what the peace agreement did was to agree for both Macha, the vice president and the presidency to come back into government and as part of that agreement, they would form a new government, called a government of national unity, and then this government would would oversee a series of recommendations that would then lead to independent, that would then lead to elections rather in 2018. So between they had they had basically three years of this transitional government to implement a series of measures, including a series of economic measures. And it is those measures that basically, as a senior economic advisor, I am overseeing, if you like. Um, it has well, not let's been let's ceiling, pause, unfortunately.
0: You've given us yeah. a lot to digest. So let me just recap and see if uh, I'm getting it. So, So in the intro, I talk about the peace treaty, and I, I sort of made reference like it was a peace treaty between Sudan and South Sudan. But what what I'm getting from what you're saying, that's not the peace treaty that that that's involved here. It is because, as most young countries experience in the in the early stages of their growth, South Sudan was going through a civil war, and so the peace treaty that that you that we're referring to here is a peace treaty. Between warring factions within South Sudan, nothing to do. Within
1: with, South Sudan, no, yes. North basically, Sudan. Okay. the country disintegrated a, along tribal lines, if you like. Right. It's really a tribal conflict. You have, you know, that's what you basically had.
0: Yeah. Right. And I mean, as I said, most most young nations experience that as part of their development. Most, you know, the United States went through their civil war. A number of European countries went through war among themselves along different factions. And so that is what. And so, so, so that I just wanted to clarify that because I know when I when I did the intro, I was of the impression that it was it was the, the peace between Sudan and South Sudan that was in question. Okay, so so let me let me let you continue. You were you were going to give a little more details about the um economic um um you know recommendations that that you're supposed to be overseeing as a senior um economic advisor.
1: All right, So. In a w- in in that sense, I am not. Um, although basically, these are recommendations that had to be carried out by the government of national unity, which is headed by Care. So, just to continue yeah. a little bit, because that that's also important in terms of the context. After the peace agreement was signed in 2015, in April of 2015, the the, the two gentlemen um, they've president and the vice president, they worked together for a little while. And um, as part of the peace agreement, Riak Macha was allowed to bring in his, his, his army, literally bring in his army for his safety and protection in the capital called Juba. And, but unfortunately, again, um, tensions increased and they started fighting again. That was just last year, in July of last year. So, a new round of fighting opened up, a new wave of refugees, and that is what really pushed the envelope, making the country, as I said, one of the countries that has the largest number of refugees, with um, 3.2 million displaced out of a population of roughly 12 million people, and uh, uh, the majority of these, obviously, are children and women um, who who are there. So, my role basically, is to oversee that that chapter of the peace agreement that specifies a number of measures that the government of national unity was to undertake, measures that were aimed at increasing the revenues of the country, measures that were aimed at ensuring that the, the revenues from oil are equitably distributed not only within the country but between Sudan and South Sudan. Because what happened was when sudan was one country all of the oil fields of sudan are located in south sudan so the oil fields are located in in south sudan but the actual um processing plants the the refineries and the port from which the oil is exported is located in sudan so following the peace agreement the countries had to agree on a formula for sharing this um, wealth. So South Sudan continues to produce the oil, but it has to be sent by pipeline to Sudan to be processed and to be exported. So agreements over that. You had several pieces of legislation that had to be passed as part of it, including anti-corruption legislation, um, legislation that would allow them to to, uh, distribute land, the land commission, you had a fiscal legislation that had to be passed, um, legislation to allow for the auditing because one of the things that happened was, unfortunately for Sudan, was um, there was a high level of corruption right after after the war and measures had to be put in place to ensure that there was a, a proper audit system of government accounts. That government became um, accountable measures such as ensuring that all the different um, accounts that were being opened up in different banks by different persons within the government, that all of these were closed and all of that was consolidated within one authority. Um, There were measures related to the bank itself, the the Bank of Sudan, and how it could conduct its affairs. So all of those had to be implemented over the three-year period leading up to elections in in um twenty in twenty eighteen. So what has happened since is since the events of twenty sixteen, July of twenty sixteen, the war continues but not to any great extent. What has what what, what has happened is that got, the government itself has announced a unilateral ceasefire, but the opposition forces they call them the, the SPLM-IO. The SPLM was, it was is the name of the military that won the war with Sudan. So you have the SPLM-IO, which is in opposition, and you have the SPLM-A, which is the ruling, or if you like, the, the president's um, military. So they, they have the SPLM in opposition, or the forces loyal so the deputy vice president has not agreed to the ceasefire. So you have a lot of skirmishes that are still going on in different areas of the country. What, has hap- what is happening now, as I speak, is uh, JMEC, the organization for which I am working, has agreed with the countries that I spoke about earlier that are the guarantors, as it were, of the peace agreement, which is the countries of Ethiopia, Uganda. Kenya, and the Sudan itself, the guarantors of the peace, of the peace treaty, have decided that they would have a last-ditch attempt at peace. And we're involved now in a process that is called the revitalization of the peace agreement, which is basically attempting to bring together, next month, to bring together all of the warring parties. Because what happened since the fighting broke out, initially it was among the two major factions. Of the president's tribe, if you like, the Dingas and the Newas. But since the fighting broke out, a number of other groups, a number of other other tribal issues came to the fore. Because Sudan has a total of sixty different tribes, and a number of those tribes and have been pushing. Some of them from armed groups that now have to be taken into into the into the equation. So, we are working very feverishly now on doing a revitalization exercise, a revitalization of the peace agreement, which we hope will finally bring a lasting peace. In fact, a number of the countries that have guaranteed the peace or that have helped, the US, for example, which is spending a, a, a remarkable amount of $2 billion, or we just spent in just one year $2 billion on humanitarian efforts, and the EU. And the Norwegians and, and the Chinese that are spending enormous amounts of money on the humanitarian to feed and to house and to clothe the millions of refugees are saying, Well this is the last chance. They will have to they might have to reconsider their position on support for South Sudan if the parties insist on fighting. So the hope is that the revitalization forum will bring all of those factions together. There will be some type of agreement again on peace. And we, we can then continue to um, to to execute the peace agreement. Because, Tony, one of the one of the issues we have really is the fact that because of the fighting, because the fighting continues, and because security is such a big issue, a lot of the resources that otherwise would have been used to build the country, a lot of the resources that would otherwise have been used to create jobs and to create employment and to spur economic growth. A lot of those resources are being diverted to security efforts, right. diverted to maintaining an extremely large army and so on. Before, yes. Before
0: the, what a, I mean, is there an understanding of what exactly is the issue that they're fighting for or fighting over?
1: <laughs> that is the most. That is the most perplexing thing. A lot of people say it is simply a question of fighting over the spoils, because South Sudan has the potential for being a, a, an extremely rich country, and um, whoever is in control basically gets control of the oil fields. And a lot of people believe that that is a that is a war, that is a fight over the wealth of the country. Uh, but I think it runs deeper than that. There's a lot of deep seated resentments. Between the tribes, Uh, one of the things that you will notice very quickly when you arrive in um, South Sudan is that there is a lot of emphasis on which tribe you belong to. People are proud to identify themselves as belonging to a particular tribe. And and I think that has created a lot of of animosity and um, a lot of of problems and in a sense has fueled the fighting. So when, when you have atrocities being committed, it is usually... One tribe being accused of committing atrocities against another tribe, and you have reprisals. So, for example, as part of the conflict, you have a, a certain area of South Sudan where you have um, cattle raiding. So, one tribe will go, will raid um, the cattle of the other tribe and take their and take their their, their young girls as as um as um what do you call them, take them as back the with them. Uh, right, take them back, and then you'll have a reprisal. The The next week, you'll, you, you'll have that tribe now going back, doing the same thing, and you have this back and forth. So, within the broader conflict, you also have smaller conflicts that are taking place along tribal lines. So, that makes it extremely difficult. Traditionally, let me really ask difficult.
0: you, um, when you studied Sudan um, a long time ago, and not that young anymore, there was issue of, of nomadic tribes, um, that, that used to move their herds all over the place. Is that still something, or most of most of the, most of the nomad, nomadic um, traditions have been um, pretty much discontinued?
1: Is that, is that yes? You sti- yes, you 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 have a lot of the of the nomadic tribes uh, more concentrated in the north, okay, okay. In, Sudan, in Sudan, as against South, South Sudan. Sudan. Okay, yes, those 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 tribes you have in South Sudan they're more stable, established uh, within geographical areas.
0: And, yes. and and obviously if they were able to come if they were able to win the war against the North, that means those tribes were able to come together and fight for, for independence. Um, it would seem that um somehow they were able to come together for a common cause. So you would hope that um prosperity for everybody would also be a common cause that could probably um motivate
1: them to come back together a second time, you know? <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed, and and that that was the hope of the international community. But what happened was because the civil war was so brutal, and because there was so, many, so much atrocities being committed on both sides, you have a lot of that animosity that lingers. So you have people, you know, thinking of revenge. You have people thinking of, well, you know, they they killed my father and my mother and murdered my sister. You know, then I'm gonna. Take revenge on that tribe. So you have a lot of that, and and um, it's a very difficult place because uh, when I say place, it's a very difficult uh, moment uh, because of all of those lingering uh, you know atrocities. And and one would have hoped, as you said, that after the war, after the war of independence, that they would have come together and would have been able to amicably share the spoils, you know, of their country, because Sudan. Has the potential for being one of uh, the the richest countries in Africa. One of the things that, one of the of the areas within the peace agreement, one of the things that I'm currently doing, is to help the government develop a development plan, a free development plan. And in that process, I'm beginning to identify areas where. And could really do a lot, especially in the areas of, of agriculture. So in addition to the to the oil, the oil reserves that are there in the country, you also have rich agricultural lands, some of the best agricultural lands anywhere in Africa. So the potential for developing a, a huge agriculture sector is there. Um, you know, um, obviously, because of all the fighting and so on, you have issues of, of education. You, you would have to build up the education system. To have more people been, been been trained and so on, but all of that can happen. But for all of that to happen, the fighting has to stop. The parties have to agree to work together and to build the country as one as one cohesive unit.
0: Well, there there is there, a catch twenty two in the sense that if if prosperity is able to start taking root and persons are starting to 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 be to reap benefits from it that in itself may be an incentive for people to want peace. Because if, if you're doing well, you will have more motivation to stop fighting because fighting in itself can disrupt your prosperity. So so I think that the role that you have is actually very critical and very crucial, um, albeit under very trying circumstances. But um, I guess the glimmer of hope is that if, um, if, if we can bring more prosperity and hope and whatever it is to people, um, that might help them to, you know, to dull the edge a little bit of the desire for revenge. At least we hope that. And then and then we can see some progress. So, so I, you know, the final words on that, I have to bring you back because there is so much to talk. We can do the whole hour. Um, but um, as we wrap up the discussion, the brief discussion on Sudan, you know, um, go ahead and tell us a little bit more, a little more details about some of the talk about agriculture, but some of the specific things that you see um, in terms of potential. Um, Maybe talk about the role of the international communities because I know there's a lot of talk about China um, buying up a lot of land, occupying land in in Africa for production of food to um, send back to China and all of those. I mean, I know you say that they're involved in trying to get the peace established, but but looking at all those resources, they must be also um, you know, um, Leaking their Trump to try to get to try to get access to, to those resources as well
1: Yes, indeed, you know, it is uh, the, To use the famous quote made popular by, by Bill Clinton is the economy stupid, you know Really that is what drives everything unfortunately in this particular instance issues of security and, and also the humanitarian issue has taken center stage so a lot of the efforts of the international community could have been geared towards the economy, but instead they have to put those monies into the humanitarian effort. And I indicated just one example, the U.S. spending $2 billion in just about a year. Imagine if Sudan was able to access these $2 billion U.S. dollars in its economy, what that would have done to spur growth. So that is one issue. Um, the question then becomes how do you... How do you grow the economy and, and how do you do this? And once the peace is agreed upon, then you have a the tremendous um, task of bringing back millions of people back into South Sudan, bringing them back. And with them coming back, you have to look about the, uh, the building of schools, building of health centers, Creating opportunities for these individuals and so on. So it's a it's a huge task ahead, but it's one which, I, as I said before, Sudan can achieve because it has the potential. Not only in agriculture, not only with its oil reserves, but um, just in terms of the services sector, can be developed. It can also develop its tourism. Tourism has has huge potential there as there as well. Um, It has natural forests, um, natural wildlife, and so on. So these are areas that can be focused on and that can be built on. And um, it it is really a nice country in terms of temperature and in terms of the seasons and so on. So it has a great potential, a great draw. For tourists and and people talk fondly of Juba, the capital, before the fighting, how it was a beautiful city always filled with tourists and so on. So it, there is a, a role for tourism, a role for obviously the services sector, agriculture, combined with the natural resource of, of oil. There are also other minerals um, that have been spoken of. That potentially exists, but you, you you would need investments in those. You mentioned the role of the Chinese. The Chinese are very active in South Sudan. In fact, they are the main individuals involved, the main country involved in the oil industry there. Um, they have some of the of the biggest stake in the oil industry and helping to um, to exploit the oil reserves in Sudan. And they have put a lot of investments. But even that is on a, is at a standstill. Countries are a bit um, hesitant to do more investments in the oil industry, and that's one area where the country can really take off. Because if, for example, they're able to build their own refineries and invest in exploration, invest in new mines, um, then all of that would help boost the economy very, very, very quickly. So. You know, I'm an internal optimist. Um, I believe, like everything else, you know, you're, you're, you're put in, in certain con- um, positions in life for particular reasons. And the fact that I'm here in South Sudan has really been a, a blessing. Um, given my training and my background, that has been, that has been welcome. In fact, when I, when I first came into, into um, South Sudan, there was an article in a local newspaper Basically, saying that, that offered a ray of hope for the Sudanese people because simply because of my training and my experience. So a lot of a lot of um, there's a lot of expectations that will be able to help guide the country because one of the things that 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 happened and one of the things that happens in conflict countries is that the first people to leave are the trained people, people who have who can go to other countries and work. So you had, for example, a number of qualified economists and, and other people financial people who would have helped build the country were the first to leave because they could afford to live and uh, just a question of of retreating people bringing back um you know the people who have gone overseas who have gone away bringing them back to the country all of that can only happen when there is peace and we talk consistently about a peace dividend that this country can actually draw. So my hope is that the Revitalization Forum that is scheduled for September for next month will be a success, that we will get a lasting peace in Sudan and that the millions of Sudanese that are waiting for opportunities to make a better life for themselves, the millions of Sudanese that are hoping for a better future will see that future. And I'm thankful for the opportunity as a Dominican to play a role and to be a a pivotal and and important part of that process. And uh, I will accept nothing more but success. I I certainly don't look to feel in that that, um, process. I'm, I'm very optimistic that the peace process will work, that the parties to the agreement will understand that there is no need to continue to fight, that they're just wasting time, wasting resources, and that they will come together to work together with the international community, that has a tremendous amount of goodwill. I mean, uh, it is just remarkable to me the amount of goodwill from the international community, community, the the kind of investments that they are taking, that they're willing to take. And just one thing that I did not mention is the role of the United Nations. There is a a United Nations um, force that is now in the country, and they are beefing up this force. So we're going to have over um, 4,000 Peacekeepers coming, but they're called they're called a rapid deployment force, the RDF. These are individuals who will be able to to take action if fighting you know flares up again, and who will be in a position to protect the civilians in the country. So the UN is heavily invested in that effort, and all of the world, you know, the United Nations, the UN, the EU, the Chinese, the Turkish, the Americans, you know. There's just a tremendous amount of goodwill from the international community. But they are saying that this cannot last forever, that they must see a sign from the South is that they are willing to sue for peace. And and that is my hope that you know, we'll get the peace and that we can we can help implement those recommendations that have been clearly well thought out to help bring growth and prosperity to South Sudan. Yeah. Yes, yeah, Tony, are you still with me? Okay. So yes, yeah, so yeah. So that is the hope.
0: Yes. Yeah. So, so now I was saying I um I I, I know that is not the first time you've worked in conflict in conflict areas. I know you worked in Afghanistan and some other African countries before. And so, something that I said, I'm going to have to bring you back so we can go through a little bit more um, because I really want to spend a little bit of time on um on the budget situ- um presentation of Dominica. I like to do it while it's fresh um, because. Is, is, is a way of educating our listeners. And even if you're not from Dominica, educating them on the budget process so that um, they can understand it. And, and in understanding it, hopefully it helps them to expect, to know what to expect from the government and what it really means, what does a budget mean, um, and, and so on. So um, I, I want us to change gears. Um and, and after all the complexities and all of those things that you're dealing with in, in South Sudan, um, Dominica should be, um, I don't know, something, spare time activity for you. But it's turning out that um, <laughs> that in the Caribbean, in Dominica and the Caribbean, we've been making very heavy weather of getting the economies of those islands going. We don't have conflicts to deal with. We don't have war. We don't have harsh climates. We, you know, and yet still, we have we have yet to find one of those countries that can break out and, and provide a certain level of um, of comfort and a certain quality of life to their citizens. So I mean let's switch gears and I know the, the government of Dominica presented a budget to Parliament last week. Um, a budget that totals eight hundred and fifty a little more eight hundred and fifty million dollars. Um, Three hundred and fifty million of that being for capital. Um, expenditure with um, 500 million being for recurring now i am naive i guess because i think if you if you give me 800 million dollars to spend in dominica at the end of the year there'll be no more needs really i mean i don't know maybe i'm naive but you being an economist you being also part of of parliament i i wanted to take a, a little bit of time and just talking broad terms, if you're familiar, I guess, guessing your you're familiar, although you seem to you're pretty busy and your hands full in South Sudan, um, the highlights of of what was presented by government in terms of their budget and how that relates to whatever areas that they that they're putting forward as the areas of priority.
1: Yes, indeed, Tony, and, and I like the way you phrase the discussion. Um, what happened was the 2016-17 budget was around half a million. Half a billion dollars, about 500. It was a 500 million dollar budget. But what happened was between June of last year and now, the government did exceptionally well with the sale of passports. So whereas they had in the original budget, they had budgeted about 100 million dollars coming from the sale of passports, they in fact now claim that they they got close to over $450 million in passports, which is ironic, which is something that for years I've been saying that is where we really should be. That is where the government should be. Um, they finally said they got it this year, so we'll accept that, that that's what they got, and that's the reason why we moved from a, a $500 million budget to an $800 million outcome, if you like. Uh, so the budget was better by close to four hundred million dollars. In other words, it almost it almost doubled because of the sale of passports. But one of the one of the problems that we have in Dominica, and as you rightly pointed out at the beginning, the country seem incapable of being able to use those resources. And that's sort of the problem that I have with Dominica. I, want, I have been one of the harshest critics of this current government because I clearly I just don't feel that this government has the interests. And I'm saying that with all sincerity. I don't believe that this government has the interests of the Dominican public at heart. And the reason why I say that is that even where, in this case, where the government has been able to, to get, and that would be a dream for any country, that you double your revenues, revenues that you expect to get them. In one failed swoop, you double the revenues. You got $400 million you did not expect, and all of a sudden you have this money. You would have expected this government to say, well, what can we do with this kind of money? Because we understand, firstly, that it is not sustainable, that I will not always be getting an extra $400 million in my hand every year. So I must find a way to correctly utilize this money so that I can grow the economy. Because if I put this money, if I use this money in such a way to grow the economy, then I'll benefit. But what did we see the government do? We saw the government going all over the countryside, basically handing out money to individuals, saying, you hold 1,000, you hold 1,002, you hold 5,000. Now you cannot build a country that way. It has created a lot of goodwill for the government because people who have been for, for years have not been able to find employment within the country, Individuals who have bills to pay, individuals who have commitments, suddenly are being given money in their hand. They're not going to refuse it and they will thank the government for it, but ultimately it's not going to benefit the country. What we have been suggesting to government and what came out very clearly in the response by the leader of the opposition, Honorable Lennox Linton, is that those monies must be used in the productive sectors. And what do we mean by the productive sectors? These monies must be invested in agriculture. So instead of committing $15 million to agriculture, commit $200 million to agriculture. That would involve uh, just a transformation of the agriculture sector. You're going to open up new agricultural lands. You're going to build up the feeder road system that will connect the roads to the markets. You're going to embark on a marketing campaign you're going to purchase two refrigerated vessels, one that can go up, that can apply the northern trade, one that can ply the southern trade. And fifth, you're going to build a network of factories and interrelated infrastructure for agriculture, which would involve an agro-processing plant that processes your tubers, like your dashing, your yams, and so on, so, so you can make flour and other starchy products from that. You're also going to have your your um, your juice factory, so you can now embark in those new lands you open up. You're going to embark on a replanting of, of grapefruits and oranges and so on, and limes. You are going to do... These are, the, these are the kind of efforts that I would have expected the government to embark upon. But we see nothing of the sort. We see even in this new budget, 2017-18 budget, that... Agriculture is again being relegated to the back burner. No, you, you know, I have said it over and over to the point where I am even fed up of saying it. Dominica, the prosperity of this country of Dominica lies in our ability to develop our agriculture sector. I mean, not talking about the agriculture of the banana years, where we had a monocrop, where we had a crop that if if suddenly you had a, a a hurricane, you would be down for two years or three years. We're not talking about that. We're talking about an agriculture that is focused on niche marketing, an agriculture that is smart, that processes that adds value in the country to everything that is produced. We're talking about an agriculture that is expanded to include the livestock and poultry sectors and the essential oil sectors. And if you're able to do this, if you're able to focus on those areas – and put these monies, not handing it out to individuals, because if you put this money in a structured way into agriculture, you're going to create jobs not only for the farmers, but you're going to create jobs for an army of persons in marketing, an army of persons in internet technology, an army of persons in the shipping area, an army of accountants. You know, you're going to create a lot of different, um, you know, offshoots. You're going to have young people forming businesses now. Where they can then do marketing, specialist marketing, and so on. So, a lot of jobs, new jobs, can be created from a serious investment in agriculture. And that, to me, is the starting point. And I have not seen that in this year's budget. And that is where I believe the government, again, the is failing. And that's why I lament the fact that this government does not have the interest of the public at heart. Because even if they have not been able to, to do it, the fact that we have been saying it, we have been advising this government in public forums, on the radio, Every chance I have had, I've, I've been saying that that is where we need to go. Years now, many, many years I've been saying that the, the Dominica budget should be in the region of $1 billion. This government for years have had our budget in the region of $400, $500 million. For over 17 years, we've not seen any growth. Dominica's budget should be between $1 billion $1.5 billion to give us the kind of resources to help grow the economy. So, I'm not seeing that from this government. And this budget gives me very little reason for optimism because it appears to me that what will most likely happen or what we see going to happen is that they will try to simply hang on to some of those re- of those resources. They will try to save it because the, the fact of the matter is the rest of the economy is doing so poorly that your non-tax revenue, which is, upon, which is what you need, to build your your economy. Sorry, I said non-tax. I, I really, really meant your non-CBI revenues, revenues that are not linked to the sale of passports, Right. revenues that, that come from taxes, from your VAT, your income tax, your sales taxes. That is what needs to be built up, but that has been falling over the years, and it has been falling because of the lack of emphasis on growing the economy. So because the economy has not been growing, your sustainable revenue generation has been falling. So what the government will most likely do is that it will use the revenues from the CBI to basically back up or to supplement it's tax revenues. No,
0: let me let me let me. I'm am looking at the um, I'm looking at the budget that was presented. The, by far, in terms of the recurring expenditure, goods and services, is 41 percent of the recurring expenditure. Now. Um, as an economist, I want you to explain a little bit as to what is good because in my mind that that sig- that signals imports. But uh, but maybe I'm looking at it wrong. Um, in 2016, 2017, um, it was at it was at 108 million. Um, this this car, this fiscal year coming, it's 41% at 238 billion, more than twice. Um, and that being the largest. Portion of the of, of the recurring expenditure. Uh, I was wondering if you could um what what's what's made up of that sector in terms of in terms of if 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 you know um the top of your head um in terms of good yeah oh yes from a government from a government standpoint
1: oh yes absolutely and 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 Tony so this is the least non-productive part. Of a government service, good and services is, is just that. It's the spending on on everyday um, items like building materials that has been provided for supporters of the of the Dominica Labour Party. Um, the uh, some of that involves just the transfers, the cash I was talking about that has been handed out uh, under the guise of social services. Uh, that would that would in, involve some of the Red Clinic um, spending that has been done by the government and the fact that it is it is so shockingly high tells me that not enough monies are being placed into the productive sectors and and productive sector spending would be monies that you you put into your capital budget where you can then build the infrastructure where you can then invest in the factories invest in the training and the development of the human resource. Those are the areas that needed those type of resources. But the fact that they spent so much is because, as I said, the government has gone, has decided, has taken a conscious decision that the only way that they can remain in office is to literally pay their way to remain in office. And the way they do that is to give their loyal supporters money and to give those who feel that they have no choice, they cannot get a job in the country, who feels that the only way that they too can benefit is to come on board and support the government so that they too can get something. And in that way, they they try to guarantee their stay in power. But at the end of the day, the country continues to disintegrate. And there is going to come a point when you will not have money for even goods and services because the CBI is on its way out. The CBI, in my mind, peaked last last year. We will never get another influx of money like this as we got from the CBI. That 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 is the crowning point. It okay. has peaked, and what we what we're going to see is a steady decline in CBI revenues. Okay, so which is really worrying to me. Yes. So
0: um, the budget is in two parts. Uh, so the, the I want to break it down so that all of us lay people can understand it. And, and I have you so you can correct me in terms of my thinking. So the recurring expenses is like the operating expenses. So this is what it costs the government to run the country on a day to day basis. Right. Like to to pay their salaries. The emolument salaries is 164 mm. million. So 165 right. million. So, so twice the amount is spent in goods and services as it takes to pay Civil servants and public pay, servants, public yeah. servants. Mm-hmm. and normally, normally, you, I, I, used to think that the largest expenditure that government had was to pay civil servants, but in but goods and services is twice is twice that a month. Um, so 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 we it's spending five hundred million dollars to run the government and the capital expenditure, which is what you invest. Well, hopefully, it's investment in the sense of well, you build a road, you build a bridge, you build a school, you build a hospital, those things are capital expenditure is 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 three hundred and fifty three hundred and fifty million dollars. So I, I I get what you what, what what you're saying that um in terms of government giving out so much in terms of um goods and services to the tune of two hundred and thirty
1: seven million dollars seems really high. Um, yeah it almost equals your your entire capital spending, right, and uh, that is economic suicide that is that is you know this is yeah mm-hmm. it, yeah,
0: because uh, in a country like Dominica, where there is so much infrastructure to be built, I, I would think that um, as an economist, do you think that a more a, a, a budget that is weighted more towards the capital expenditure over recurrent? Um should be something that that we should have been we should have been seeing or looking at. so so in terms of your view, um, and compared to what I am asking you to put on your opposition hat now in terms of priorities, because you know a, a government's budget points towards the areas of priority. um so talk a little bit about what the budget points out to you to be the what you what you perceive to be the priorities of the government and how would that differ? if it were a government of United Workers' Party who was presenting that budget instead.
1: Yes, and the the important distinction that I would I would like to make is, is and it is kind of in what I said earlier, in that the government appears focused on continuing to leave off a legacy of handouts. So we guarantee our re-election by giving people money in their hand. So we build up goods and services, which goes back to imports because we are able to buy plywood, we're able to provide, you know, a little bit of this over there and so on, without growing the economy. So in the meantime, the tax base continues to be eroded, the economy continues to shrink. How that would be different from a United Workers' Party administration is that we would understand the need to plow those monies into the productive sectors. And that would include a massive investment in A, agriculture, B, tourism, and C, the services sector. So we would put those monies into areas that would generate, and I I talked earlier about how we would revitalize and revamp the agriculture sector that would provide thousands of new jobs just within agriculture. And then we would go to the tourism and, and slash manufacturing because the manufacturing would be tied to our agriculture sector so we, we're not manufacturing clothes what we manufacturing is food products what we manufacturing is perfumes what we manufacturing is cheeses and other dairy products that is where our manufacturing would be focused on it will be linked directly to the agriculture sector. So monies would go towards those areas. Especially imagine a United Workers Party government getting in his hand an extra four hundred million dollars. Man, people would be lining up to fill applications for for jobs tomorrow, you know. But we, we we don't have that in this administration. Again, coming back to what I said earlier, this lack of commitment to the Dominican public, because I see an, I see an administration, everything it has done is so-called easy money the efforts has have been lazy and lackadaisical because there's no thinking that goes into it but it sustains their lifestyle it helps them to get rich and they're happy you know um, the rest of the population continues to suffer those who cannot take it will continue to migrate Um, those who want to come back will continue to stay away And that is how it's going to be until and unless there is some change. So what I'm saying is, and and I I want the public to be very clear about this, is that there is enough resources now within this country to be able to help build an economy that can create a number of new jobs, an economy that can grow the tax base to the point where we'll be able to gain millions more or, or more dollars from Mm-hmm. paying taxes, and from taxes we get from taxing services and goods and services. So a lot more will be done, a lot more can be done um, if the United Workers' Party was in power. So, so there, there is a clear distinction between the vision of, a, of an opposition for this country and the vision of this government. And another example of this is the whole question of the tourism sector. You need for the tourism sector to be vibrant and to work, you need a steady influx of visitors. So, for example, Antigua Antigua gets on average about 200,000 visitors a year. But because of that influx of 200,000 visitors, Antigua is able to thrive compared to Dominica. They're able to build up. You have a number of people, thousands that find work within the tourism sector, including Hundreds and hundreds of Dominicans have gone to Antigua to work. Now, government has, has not been able to tackle the tourism sector because their approach at, um, at access has been haphazard. So in spite of the promises of an international airport, it has not materialized. In this budget, we're hearing that they're going to put aside $5 million a year. Now, that's not how you build an international airport. Because if you were to put $5 million a year aside, what this means is that at the end of one year, you have $60 million. It will take you another 10 years to even start to build. (laughs) You know, if you're going to build, try to build an airport from savings. You don't build infrastructure like this from savings. You build infrastructure like that that is built from your own resources and from either loan or grant financing. So I believe that there is a very strong case that can be made for Dominica to go to the international community and say, well, here is a plan that we have for developing our tourism sector that will generate X amount of jobs, that will allow us to have enough resources to be able to help combat climate change. And we're putting forward this proposal to the international community that will allow us to build an international airport that will that will allow access into Dominica. Because that that business that 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 tourists will um will suffer long to come to Dominica when they can take a flight and go to Grenada or or to St. Vincent or to St. Lucia, our closest neighbors, hassle-free as it were. And that's the more they have to suffer to come to Dominica and they will keep suffering to come to Dominica. It's just not going to work. And it's clear from the numbers. We are getting about the same number of tourists in 2017 as we got in 1980. Talking about almost 40 years Almost 40 years, and the number of tourist arrivals have barely budged in Dominica, and there's a very simple reason for this: they don't have access. So, even in terms of of, of his vision, and how he's going to tackle this question of access to Dominica, is is not it makes absolutely no sense, um, you know. Um, I, I want to jump in here, Thompson, before we run out of
0: time. Um, I I have a curiosity that I need clarification on, if you can. The Ministry of Finance, which is which is held by the Prime Minister, the, the the recurring expenditure in the Ministry of Finance that I have here in the table before me is two hundred and forty million dollars. Uh, can you can you break down a little bit in broad terms what expenses, what role is, that the Ministry of Finance plays in the economy? I mean, I was looking and it was it was showing that. Um, I was thinking maybe we have a lot of foreign of, of debt that we have to repay, but I think our debt repayment um, was only around 40, 49 million or something some small amount. So I don't know mm-hmm. if you can clarify a little bit. Where that two hundred and forty-one point nine million dollars in the Ministry of Finance is expected to be spent, and then that's not that's not that's 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 not um, capital expenditure; that is um, recurring expenditure.
1: Recurrent, for, yes, for, yes. For a of lot finance. of yes, indeed. A lot of that expenditure, a lot of the, of what we talked about earlier, the expenditure on the handouts, as it were, the Red Clinic. A lot of that is under the Prime Minister's Office. A lot no, of that's so, under so, the so, Ministry so of Finance, yes. To the public, but then, but then there,
0: there, there is a Ministry of Social Services,
1: Family, right? But it is yeah. not it is not done for the Ministry of Social Services. It
0: is not. It is done directly from the Ministry of Finance.
1: That's it. It is done directly from the Ministry of Finance, so and that's one of, one of the concerns done. that we we've, we've always had. Yeah. So a lot of that is a lot of that is transfers to to um, the public by now, the Prime Minister.
0: Now, what by what process? So okay, walk walk us a little bit through. Um a budget is presented and it's approved by Parliament. Most of presented because government has majority, they will approve their budget. When it comes now to spending money from that budget, so let's say the Ministry of Finance has $240 million allocated to it for one year. Can the Minister of Finance then just um go about and, and request funds that says, Okay, I have this expense, um, write me a cheque for this amount that I need to spend out? How does money go from, okay, um, it being in the budget and then coming to who has control and who has ultimate say on the actual spending of the money? If you understand what I'm trying to ask.
1: Yeah, okay. There are are two elements to it. There is money that's within the budget and, and that is supposed to provide a cap. So you're supposed to be telling each ministry. Like at the budget process, we assign a certain amount to each ministry. So we're saying within those ministries, you're not supposed to exceed that level of spending. But what the government has been doing in the past, it has, in fact, gone over and above. It is called extra budgetary or supplementary spending, where if, for example, we give to the Ministry of Communications, let's say we assign them $100 million in the budget, and that is voted upon in Parliament. During the year, they might end up spending $120 million dollars. This $20 million has not been budgeted. It is it is supplementary. It is extra budgetary. And after it has been spent, then they come to Parliament and pass the Supplementary Appropriations Bill. They basically tell the Parliament to approve that spending that has already taken place. So that is one aspect of it. The other one is the spending, which is the question that they were asking. The spending within the envelope, where you have been assigned $100 million, then all of these monies are on a different head. So for this $100 million, you'll will, you'll will assign some to the payment of, of, of workers, employees, uh-huh. of employees. Some will be assigned to the purchase of ink and computer equipment just for the office supplies and so on. You have dif- different heads. So every time there is a, a spending that is required, the person in that ministry, we call them a votes clerk will prepare an, an order that is then sent to the Treasury and the Treasury makes the final determination. So if for example with the Ministry of Communications I have I have been authorized to spend ten million dollars, say on furniture for this sale because I, I want to change the office around, then when I'm when I'm ready to buy the furniture, I'll prepare the documents, send it through to the Ministry of Finance, through their treasury, and then the treasury will do the approval, and then the money is uh, disbursed. Okay, So that is how it's supposed to work. But but what, what we've seen increasingly from this government is that they've gone over and beyond. They usually go over and beyond what they're authorized by, by parliament to spend. And it's a very disturbing thing. And that's one of the reasons why we say, as a United Workers Party government, when we assume the rule of government, we will do things differently. So, we will really so, impose let, let what you, fiscal let me, rules.
0: Let me ask yeah. you a question mm-hmm. things. No, interrupting you. So that that accounting um, schedule or whatever it is that you speak about, where the various so the two hundred and forty one is broken down in different sectors, as you call heads, what you call them, is if, that yes. is that is that public information that somebody can pull up and see? Okay, this is the accounting system of the government, and this is what's allocated. Yes, that.
1: yes, that is that is readily available because you have. The detailed um, budget estimates. So what what you have in, what you have the Prime Minister read is just the if you like the summary form. Mm-hmm. But there are detailed estimates, a detailed breakdown by the ministries, by the different heads that are available to the public. So yes. how does one girl go about getting a copy of that that details? Uh, um you can you can typically purchase it from the Statistics Division. The Statistics division revision has copies, and, and, and typically you can go in there and purchase. Those who are interested, in can go in and purchase a, a, a copy, because it's supposed to be made public. Is What's the name of it? It's the called the budget, it's just the budget estimates. The budget it's the, the estimates. detailed budget estimates, detailed. yeah. Detailed. So that'll give you, you know, line-by-line line breakdown of the expenses, and, you know, you'll see what they've done in the past and what they've budgeted for this particular year. You know, But I was making the point very quickly, Tony, and it is very important. And, and what we will do as a government is that we will impose fiscal rules. And those fiscal rules will include a rule that says we will not spend any monies over and above what we've been authorized to spend by parliament. And that before any new spending, like if something happens in the year and we need, for example, there is like, let's assume that there is a, a hurricane, God forbid. And all of a sudden, you need to spend a large amount of money on the recovery effort. Before that money is spent, you will go back to parliament and get parliament to vote on those estimates and not do it the reverse. Not spend and then go to parliament, but go to parliament before. That will help keep a certain level of um, accountability. And my imposing a rule that says you will not spend more than 5% over and above what is budgeted, or you will keep your budget spending over up to zero. You impose those rules and you live by those rules so that you have a, you have clear accountability with regards to the affairs of government. And we had a lot a, a big issue about whether or not the government was bringing in all of the monies from the sale of passports immediately into the consolidated fund. And that was that took center stage last year where we are telling the government, you need to bring the money. You cannot keep monies outside. And the only reason why we have all of those monies coming in is because some banks in Dominica took the unusual position of giving government back the money. So they were forced at that point to put it into the Consolidated Fund. But if the banks had not, had, had not made that, that position because of fears of money laundering, and so if the banks had not taken that position, it would have been a completely different budget out, outcome. Because that's a question that I had.
0: The the, the the passport sale program has been going on for years, and we've not been we've not seen anywhere close to that kind of money coming in, um, and being, you know, being put in 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 the open like this. And so, as an opposition, are we going to like uh, to get at any time a historical um? accounting of how much money was was actually earned by the government for all the different years gone by. Is
1: that is that also available? Yes, we have been pushing government for that and and we believe that we need to know because as I said, um money is collected within and that's another part of the good fiscal accountability. money a money is collected within a certain year, should appear within that year, within the government accounts. But we have a situation where monies were being collected last year, the year before, that was not coming into the accounts of government for that year. Okay, so we'd have to go back because, for example, the government will tell us that in, in 2014, the election year, they made $25 million from the sale of passports, whereas the year before they had made $80 million. So something obviously is wrong. You know, either the monies were diverted for election purposes or for other reasons within that year. So you have a lot of experience to do, and one of the things that that will happen is that when you have a change of government, there will be a formal forensic audit of all the government accounts to see exactly what was done, how it was done, and who did what with government resources. Um, Unfortunately for us in Dominica, we have a situation where for the past several years, um, well, not until he resigned, the, the head of the audit department that was supposed to be the watchdog over the government affairs was actually a mouthpiece for the government. So he failed to present timely reports to parliament as he was supposed to do. Mr. Clarence Christian, as the head of the audit department, was supposed to present the audit reports of government accounts to parliament every year. The last one he presented was 2011, I and mean, in 2017, so the parliament does not know, does not have a correct. Audit of the government accounts. The audit simply of because the government
0: accounts was not, has that been, been presented to the country?
1: To Parliament? Over, no. Over no. It's over six years. And part of the problem has been because the Prime Minister appointed his supporter in that position who re- simply refused to do the work of the audit department. You know, and, and there is no reason why an audit should take six years. That should be an ongoing basis. You should be auditing government on an ongoing an ongoing basis. Hey, you say you receive ten million dollars. Shouldn't that be twelve million? Shouldn't that be you know what what is going on? Constantly asking questions, constantly staying on top of the public servants and making sure that they do the right thing. None of that isn't place in Dominica. So we have a situation where the government has been free to do as it as it pleases and we are really in a bad place. The the end result of all of this is that we have an economy that is shrinking. We have an economy that has not been able to create jobs for the young people of this country. We have a population that is shrinking because people continue to migrate in their numbers. Every chance they get, they will leave the country. So we have large populations of Dominicans, now in Anguilla, in Tortola, in the BVI. They just live in the country. Every chance and any chance that they get. And um, that has to be reversed for us to really see a prosperous Dominica. We need our people to stay, we need our people to work, we need our people who have been overseas to come back, but that can only happen if there's a government that is responsible, if there's a government that sees the need to put monies into the productive sector and not simply to win an election. Wow. So,
0: (laughs) we we are 20 minutes over our hour that was allocated, so I am not going to indulge um, in your time anymore, but I think you gave us a good a good overview of the budgetary pro, um, process, and that's what I wanted really. Uh, you know, to just have our listeners be some of the most educated listeners that there is anywhere, understand what the budget process is, and um, I think you've done that. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of questions. There are a lot of questions that um, that needs to be answered. Um, I I hear you say that, you know, as, the, as, as an economist, your your, recommend, your recommendation is, is a budget of between $1 billion and $1.5 billion is what it would take to move the Dominican economy. And hopefully one of these days we could flesh that out a little bit. Because from a layman's point of view, I, I wonder where we would spend a billion dollars in Dominica. You know, we have 12 high schools, one hospital, 100 miles of road um mathematically it just it just doesn't make a lot of sense in my head um that there's that amount of money that's oh, uh, okay. to be spent in the country yes. every year uh-huh. um I, to me yes. after three four or five years you shouldn't you should be running out of things to do you know um mm-hmm. I, I know we still have a lot of a couple of big ticket items to 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 do like the international airport and, and and a lot of maybe infrastructural things that that people can do to enjoy the country and, and and industries to build and factories to build and that sort of thing. But those are not the things that I'm seeing money spent on. And so, and so from, from, a, from a citizen's point of view, I'm saying, you know, um, where where is the $800 million going? And I say, I, I, and if, if less than $200,000 of that is for salaries, where's the other 600000 going? Because when you're in when you Dominica, you don't see that level of service. Um, that says that the government is spending so much money on its people. Um, you don't get medication at the hospitals. Um, students still struggle for, for textbooks. Um, every student doesn't have a laptop or, or a tablet. Those kind of things that would say, well, okay, the government is spending a lot of money providing that kind of life to its citizens. So, so I haven't had time um, digesting the overall number, the top number of of, of um, eight hundred million dollars being spent on Domnica. Um and, and we basically like you say, you have nothing to show for it. But but Dr. Fontaine, I'm going to give you the last last word. Um, I, I I want you to just talk you know, every year we come back and we, we hash the same thing. Um, what do we how do we propose? As 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 a nation in the Caribbean before we you know all the challenges that we have, how on God's earth do we propose to break out of that um that rut and, 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 and develop into a country that's as you say, that's not going to be pushing our people out but actually drawing people to come in and to build our population instead of diminishing the number of persons who live there? How what, what do you see as an economist? Um if if Dominico was out Sudan and you came in as a senior economic and financial advisor, what would you be advising government that, that is needed? Um, I know this can be a long conversation, but in a nutshell, um, that that would be needed to, to change you know, the trajectory of the country of just threading water.
1: Well, it starts with governance. It starts with governance. It starts with a government that understands what needs to be done, and I will take the steps to get it done. That, sadly, is lacking in Dominica. So my my advice would be simple. Here's what we need to do. We need to be able to create X amount of new jobs every year. We need to be able to collect X amount in revenues. Some basic um, areas that we need to focus on, and I would outline those. What needs to be done in agriculture, in tourism sector, in the services sector, the kind of incentives that we need to do so that the private sector would be allowed to grow. That's another thing that has not happened in Dominica. Our private sector is shrinking. It has lost over 4,000 jobs under this government. It should be the reverse. 4,000 jobs should have been created at least under the, within the private sector. So private sector is shrinking. How do you reverse that sh- that shrinkage? How do you provide incentives to the private sector to help them grow? So. And then then give a plan as to how this can be done. How do you use the revenues that you've just received from the sale of passports? How do you invest that in such a way that it provides a return for you? And I always liken, you know, the CBI to a person winning the lottery. You know, you can can be responsible. If you won the lottery, you can be responsible and put that money into investment so that you're you and your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren will be taken care of for years and years to come, or you can be responsible, and because it's easy money, simply throw it away. And that's the same choice that this country has. So the ability to lay out a clear plan as to how you would use those resources, how you need to grow the tax base, because that is what is going to sustain you over time, your tax base. How are you going to do that? How are you going to create a level of services within health sector, within the tourism sector, within the banking sector. You know, all of these are things that that I would kind of lay lay on the table. But as I said, ultimately, Tony, it depends upon governance. It depends upon whether or not the government is sincere about bringing growth and prosperity to the country. And from what I have seen, I can say categorically that this Dominican Labour Party government, led by Roosevelt Scariot, is not interested in the development of the Dominican public. because they've had 17 years and there is literally nothing to show for it. And we need a change of government to begin with, and hopefully that change will come. All right, thank you so much, um, Dr. Fonten. I wish you all the
0: best. I I wish you you know continued optimism in your role in South Sudan, and and of course. Um, you know, wish you all all the best in terms of um, personal uh, personal safety and security, and of and 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 you know, as you as you take on each task, all the strength all the strength that you need. And, uh, and as usual, it's always a pleasure to have you on on this week interview. I I believe you did a good job of of um, an excellent job actually of explaining the different components of the budget. listeners, um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to try to get a PDF version of the salient parts of the budget, the summaries, the appropriation, and maybe I'll put it up on the on, on the Facebook page. Maybe Sam can even have it on the website. So those who want to take at the breakdown of the different numbers will get a chance to do that. So that's it, Dr. Um, Thompson, thank you so much. And, and, and I know it's pretty early where you are. Um, it's probably, what, 3
1: a.m., are you? No, it's... Um, it's closer to 4 30 in the morning. Oh, okay, so it's in the morning. Okay. Yes, 4:30 in the morning. Yeah. So at least I, I get a chance for a couple hours of sleep. Still. Before you have to so <laughs> and, sleep and that better, makes
0: me more yes. appreciative of your time. So thank you so much.
1: Yeah. And thank you, Tony. I appreciate it. And thank you again for what you continue to do and for continued success with um, this weekend interview. Okay.
0: Thank, thank you. Me. All right. Thanks. Well, listeners. <laughs> This has been um, Dr my guest tonight on this weekend interview was Dr. Fong Tin, and um, he, he was talking to me live on Skype from South Sudan and, and thanks, thanks to the um, technology gods, we never lost connection, we never dropped connection, our connection was pretty crisp and pretty clear. And um, he you know talked about his his role his, that he's played in South Sudan and, and it makes me proud. You know, um, Africans helping to, to solve problems in Africa. I think that's what we need. And, um, he's, he's playing his part. And, um, of course, we, we leaned on his expertise a little bit to go through some of the budget. And, of course, as a member of the opposition, I try to put, uh, juxtaposition, side by side comparison of, of the, of what, uh, United Workers Party government differently. Um, as as presented in the budget. Um, keep your comments coming. Um, they, they, they're very um, animated. and I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Uh, good, you know, all, all the best to um, Dr. Fontaine. You, my listeners, thank you so much. Every Wednesday you come back and, and you join me. I'm so appreciative of your time. I know there's a lot of stuff competing for your, your time and attention, and I appreciate you. Coming back every week. If tonight was the first night you listened to us, well, welcome. I hope you you enjoy the conversation and that you will come back. You will become a regular listener. We do this every Wednesday night, Eastern Standard Time, uh, on tdnradio.net. We you can also tune in uh, well, of course, um, the tuning app. Uh, you can find us, and we also have our own app on the on the Apple on the, on the iPhone App Store and the Google Play Store. So, so, find us, join us every Wednesday, um, link up on the, this weekend interview page, you know, we, um, I welcome all your suggestions. So let me say good night and thank you, by the way, to our engineer, Sam, always doing a good job. And, and I'll see you next week, Wednesday.